All right, everybody, shalom, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from the shores of the Mediterranean. That's right. I'm on family vacation with my family, and I am joined by my beloved one and only Malka Fleischer. Shalom, Malka, from the shores of the beautiful Yama Tichon, the Yama Gadol, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. Hello. We're having a really good time. You look relaxed, Yishai. That's fun to see. <laughs> Were you about to say unusual? Yeah, I was, but I didn't want to hurt your leafings. Leafings is the way we say feelings in our little micro family here. You know, people develop their funny words. By the way, I heard you say when you said uh, hello, I, I heard you say almost say aloha. <laughs> and the truth is, is that in Hawaii, they're facing some very serious wildfires right now that are like burning down uh, the, the island of Maui and stuff like no. that. So we want to pray for the folks in a sea far, far away from here uh, to have uh, successful containment of that fire. Uh, here in the Middle East, we have our own, in, in our beautiful Holy Land, the land of Israel, the state of Israel, we have our own issues. But as we're looking right now, Maka, at the Mediterranean, literally, uh, it doesn't feel like there's any issues at all. Isn't that fun? You know, we haven't really uh, done so much news watching or anything like that, and it just, it just has felt so, so good and relaxing on the one hand. On the other hand... Um, on the other hand, your article in Tablet Magazine uh, about uh, – what was the title of that article? Um, I wrote an article, and, you know, I looked it up, Ishai. It feels like I wrote it like three months ago. I wrote it three weeks ago, less, 20 days ago. Uh, it was published in Tablet Magazine. It's called I Have a Right to Live in Judea and Samaria, simple. Um, and it was – it talked really about um, like – what it's like to be a, a resident of Judea and Samaria in encountering people, particularly on social media, and what it feels like to be like addressed by haters um, on on places like Twitter and or I guess you call it X now or whatever. But um, what it feels like to like live and try to um, justify your very existence to people who who hate you, and it was. And the point of the article was to um, explain some basic facts about the residents of Judea and Samaria, who we are, what motivates us, uh, and who we are not, um, what, what we're like. Um, I wrote this article. I got some nice positive feedback, and I felt really good that I put out an article. I'm not like such a pro- – I'm not a prolific writer, basically. I'm a non-prolific writer. Um, and it felt really good to get something out and to finally say something – Um, that I felt really did reflect on uh, the community that I'm a part of. Um, And then I let it go. It like it happened. I let it go. And then today um, I found out that Eugene Kontorovich, who is like a legendary pro-Israel defender of Israel in in the international law arena. He's a professor um, and he talks a lot about Israel's rights to its lands, particularly lands in Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, um, and and why Israel should be supported in international law. And he's really a spectacular and prolific writer. Um, and I found out that he had written an article about my article, but not an article about my article, but an article defending my article from another article that had been written afterwards in Tablet Magazine. In response. response, A response to my article that I had not seen, didn't know about. A professor in Brown University, Berman, uh, he attacked your position 
was very careful to say that you have rights as human beings and, was, and that, that people should not be unkind to the so-called settlers, but disagreed on the uh, premises of international law. And then Eugene Kantorovich smashed and chopped him up and turned him into mincemeat, in my opinion, um, vis-a-vis claims of international legality of Jewish presence in Judea, which should be so obvious, with, with basically the following point, which is the previous owner of the land before the state of Israel was Jordan, which was an illegal occupier and did not have any title to the land. And before that, it was the mandate for Palestine, which was an internationally recognized uh, accord, which stipulated that this land should be Jewish. And so that's who owns the land. And, and if you think about it, it's just so obvious. It's so not tricky. And yet he had to make that defense. In any case, obviously, Malka, your article stirred up a big firestorm. It all happened on tablet. I just want to say um, that the Professor Berman, who wrote a response um, to my article, he basically said that we have no right to live in Judea and Samaria. Um, okay. You know, I've heard that before. Um, but I want to... Negating, by the way, skipping over that the United States of America recognized Jewish rights to live in Judea and Samaria. He just, like, conveniently skipped over that. Right, which is something that Professor Kontorovich pointed out. Um, And it was a very good article, by the way. If anyone wants to more deeply understand the international law support for um, our rights throughout the land of Israel... Um, then I really recommend that you read this article, which does go in depth while keeping it like readable because this stuff can get very legalistic and like overwhelming. So this article was not overwhelming. I really recommend it. Um, But I just want to say about Professor Berman that I did appreciate that he acknowledged the hardship of being a resident of Judea and Samaria in, in the sense that we are not treated like people. Um, we are treated like evil bad guys, and we are not evil bad guys. And I and I was very pleased, actually, to see in his article that while he chose to address the legal aspects of what I wrote, which I didn't really go in per se to the legal aspects of um, our rights in Judea and Samaria, um, he had to acknowledge basically that we are demonized um, and that we face a lot of hate speech and a lot of hate actions on the part of our enemies. And so I felt like that was a big success. Um, And anyway, it's a fascinating conversation, and I recommend that anyone who's interested in these issues go through it because it's like like the most um, flushed out ever, like, Twitter thread. You know what I mean? When you're, like, seeing people argue back and forth, it's kind of like that, except in, like, neat and very well-written articles, three articles. And I recommend that you read all of them. Um, start with mine. I have a uh, right to live in Judea and Samaria. And they're all on tablet. And you'll see uh, Professor Berman and Professor Kontrovich. Okay, so good on tablet magazine. Uh, Maka, speaking of Judea and Samaria and the rights of the Jewish people to live in Judea and Samaria, I want to mention the Jewish community of Hebron. And that's where the mamas and papas are at. Uh, and that is a very important stop, very important stop on the biblical highway. I recommend that people check out uh, hebronfund.org to support our, uh, our rights by uh, putting your efforts where your mouth is uh, of all kinds, including, of course, our tours, which are fabulous, run by Rabbi Simcha Hachbound, hebronfund.org forward slash tour. And, of course, High on the Har will take you to the heart of it all, which is the Temple Mount uh, in Jerusalem, uh, highonthehar.com. Uh, we'll also uh, uh, train you and teach you the halachic ramifications. What's the word I'm looking for? The uh, parameters of how to do it right. 
that's high on the har. So that's two great organizations. And of course, getting great information, we mentioned Tablet, uh, but two other great organizations are JNS.org and JewishPress.com. Really will be part of your news consumption diet and will keep your mind healthy and limber and reading the, the good and true stuff that's happening out there, JNS.org and JewishPress.com. Uh, Ishai, I was wondering if you could talk about this. I don't know if this is the way you wanted the direction of the, the show to go, because here we are on vacation and everything is kind of sweet um, and carefree. Uh, but you, I saw you having an interesting conversation with a guy working at a shoe store. We, we bought the kids some shoes uh, for the start of school. School year is about to begin. Um, and I was wondering if you, I'm putting you totally on the spot. But I'm wondering if you're interested in discussing uh, your, like, meetup with a random resident of Israel's southwest uh, border, bordering Gaza communities. Uh, yeah, you're not putting me on the spot, uh, but it is a little bit of a painful topic, Atad. Uh, what happened was is that we were uh, at a mini mall. Actually, it's a pretty big mall, but it was an outdoor mall. And uh, there, was four, there was five stores in a row. And all of them had English signs. American Eagle, Foot Locker, Locker, Skechers, and another store, it had, and it was like five signs in full-on English. Skechers, full-on English, Foot Locker, full-on English. And there was one which was called Mega Sport. The word mega is not a Hebrew word. Sport's not a Hebrew word, but at least it was written in Hebrew. We went into that store and I said to them, you know, thank you for writing your sign in Hebrew. I can't stand the fact that all these signs are in English. And they both, the sellers agreed with me. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, and I said to them, I left America. We, don't, we, don't, we didn't come here for America. We came here for Israel. We, like, and that's why we're in this store today, Mega Sport. So later on, we, were, we went back in that area, and, and suddenly I saw one of the guys, and he was having a cigarette break. A Sephardic local Southwestern Israel Jew Gaza border community like you said and he said to me so you really left America I said yeah he said he said but is it safe there from the gang violence and stuff like that I'm like oh yeah you don't even feel that stuff that's like only if you're like in the inner city if you're living where like regular Jewish folks live you're not going to feel it or ever see it well that's not that's not totally true there's some Jewish communities that face anti-Semitic attacks for example right but he was talking about like gangland violence type of thing uh, anyway, maybe I spoke uh, t- too quickly, but that's what I told him. I said, yeah, you're not going to feel it. And then I, I didn't know where this was going. And then he says to me, yeah, because I'm considering leaving. And I'm like, really? And I could see that he was a very wholesome, whole Israeli. And he said to me, you know, I've grown up here. They tell you as a kid that these rockets are just going to stop now. Don't worry about it. But you grow up like peeing your pants and being afraid of these rockets coming at you and you see and here's the part that he said he said you see that the government is unable to uproot the terrorism and he says to me he goes I voted for Ben Gvir and Ben Gvir has done many good things but like he's not really been able to change the map we still treat these people with kid gloves we still allow terrorism to reign free and we still have not flattened the terror infrastructures and I just looked at him and I was like I agree with you 1000% 1,000%. And, uh, and he said to me, you know, I, I don't know if I want to raise kids that way. And I ended the conversation by saying to him, I said to him, look, we came here for one reason really, which is faith. We really have faith in Hashem and a belief in Hashem. And he says to me, as a Sephardic Jew in these communities would say, he's like, of course, it's all about the faith. 
It's all about the faith. And he loves Israel, uh, but he doesn't want to raise children or live anymore in fear. And that's the simple reality that people don't talk about. Which is why Israel was created at all. Right? That's the reason that you had all these secular Jews who came to Israel and were like, we're tired of living in fear and we don't want Jews to live in fear. So we're going to create. That was supposed to be reason number one. Reason number two or three or four was supposed to be faith, right? They were not, the secular Zionists were not people of faith per se, even though they were deep inside. But about externally, they were not. Uh, they wanted a safe place for Jews. If you can't create that basis for life, then, then it's a fail. I think we should write that. I think we should write about this. Um, in any case, Malka, um, you know, I want to change topics for a second. Sometimes we, uh, Israelis and Jews are like aliens in this world. People are just like, what are the Jewish people? And sometimes we look at some of our enemies and I'm like, what are you doing in my land? You're an alien in my land. And uh, sometimes the world seems alien. It's just, it's just like, why can't we just live in peace? There's so many weird things, so many fighters out there. But there's also the issue of actual aliens. And that's right. And that's being debate, discussed in Congress. But there's also halachic and Jewish ramifications to these issues. And our own Rabbi Shimshon Adel has a talk for us this week about aliens in Jewish thought. The UFOs, like real aliens in Jewish thought. So I think that's a great segue into something completely different. Uh, and so Rabbi Shimshon Adel, please take it away with a little talk about aliens. Shalom Yishai. Are we alone? Or is there extraterrestrial life, intelligent life, to be found in some galaxy far, far away? Have they tried to visit us, communicate with us? Are UFOs real? In July, a United States House of Representatives subcommittee held a hearing on UFOs and heard testimony from three retired military veterans about unexplained flying object sightings and government possession of spacecraft and non-human biological material. But what is the Jewish view on extraterrestrial life? The first Jewish thinker to address this question was the great Spanish philosopher Chazdai Crescas, who lived from 1340 to 1410 or 11, one of the great medieval Jewish philosophers. In his classic work of Jewish philosophy, Or Hashem, he dedicates an entire chapter to the possibility of life on other planets and concludes that it is not in conflict with Jewish belief. He brings verses from the Psalms which speak of Hashem's creations, his wonders, his might and power. For example, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of Hashem and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. If the heavens declare the glory of Hashem, well, that would suggest that there is life in the heavens somewhere beyond earth to declare his glory. Or Psalm 145, your kingdom is a kingdom spanning all olamim, all worlds, suggesting that there are other worlds where Hashem is king. To suggest that there is no life on other planets for Kreskas would be to suggest that somehow Hashem's power is limited. He points to a passage in the Talmud in Tractate of Odazara, which asks, what exactly does Hashem do now that he has created the entire world? Well, one answer is that at night at least, he rides on his cherub and hovers over 18,000 worlds 
or planets. Now, the idea of 18,000 planets is already found in classic Greek astronomy. But for Kreskas, this suggests that there are many, many more planets in our universe beyond our solar system, beyond our galaxy, which may contain life. Many centuries later, Writing in the early 19th century, Rabbi Pinchas Eliyahu Harvitz of Vilna would revisit the question of life on other planets. In his Sefer Habrit HaShalem, which is a work which synthesizes Jewish thought and mysticism and science, he cites a passage from the Talmud which expounds upon the Song of Devorah in the book of Judges, chapter 5, where Devorah sings out to Hashem following the defeat of Yavin, king of Canaan, and his general Sisra. In verse 20, Devorah records how the stars fought from heaven. From their paths, they fought against Sisra. And then, in verse 23, Cursed is Meroz, said the angel of Hashem. Bitterly cursed its inhabitants, because they came not to the aid of Hashem, to Hashem's aid among the warriors. Devorah criticizes Meroz for not coming to the aid of the Jewish people in battle. But who or what is Meroz? Well, one suggestion in the Talmud that is that Meroz was a star or is a star or planet. After all, divorce says that the stars even fought from heaven. From their paths, they fought against Sisra. So one opinion in the Talmud is that Meroz is a star or a planet. Well, how can a star or planet come to the aid of the Jewish people? For Rabbi Pinchas Eliyahu Haruitz of Vilna in his Sefer Habrit HaShalem, this suggests that there is indeed life on other planets. Now, the suggestion that there is life on other planets raises all sorts of theological questions, philosophical questions, questions of faith for us as believing Jews. Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik entertained the idea of intelligent extraterrestrial life in a conversation recorded by Rabbi David Holzer in the book Thinking Aloud. And Rabbi Soloveitchik said, it is possible that Hashem created other life forms on other planets. It is no problem to Judaism. The reason man likes to think he is the only created being in the entire universe is because of his egotistical nature. Even the concept of Am Hanivchar, the chosen people, may only be relative to our world, our small section of the universe. The Torah is written from the viewpoint of our sun, moon, and stars. It would not detract from our being the Am Hanivchar, the chosen people of this region of space, if there were another Am Hanivchar in a distant galaxy. In an article published in the Torah journal Tradition, in the winter of 1965, during the space race, Rabbi Norman Lamb explores the religious implications of extraterrestrial life and concludes by writing the following. He writes in a section entitled, We Never Were Alone. Man, and I quote, we may learn conclusively in the not-too-distant future may no longer be regarded as the purpose of creation. But his actions and his destiny are of significance to a creator who, in his infinity, is not bewildered by numbers, 
But we must begin to feel a new and pervasive collective humility in the face of the immeasurable richness and variety of God's world. The psychological climate of such wonder and humility need not lead him to conclude that God is unaware of his existence. The discovery of fellow intelligent creatures elsewhere in the universe, if indeed they do exist, will deepen and broaden our appreciation of the mysteries of the creator and his creations. Man will be humble, but not humiliated. With renewed fervor, he will be able to turn to God whose infinite goodness and providence are not limited to, but certainly include one small planet on the fringes of the Milky Way. We may yet learn that as rational, sentient, and self-conscious creatures, we are not alone. But then again, we have never felt before, nor need we feel today or in the future that we are alone. For thou art with me. He ends by quoting the verse from Psalms. We may one day learn that we are not alone, that there is indeed intelligent extraterrestrial life found in some far-flung corner of the universe, but rather than test our faith or shake our faith. In the words of Rabbi Lamb, this will deepen and broaden our appreciation of the mysteries of the Creator and His creations. Wishing all of the listeners blessings from Jerusalem. Okay, we're back here on the Ishai Fleischer Show. Uh, if you're going to come to the land of Israel, let's say you're an alien and you want to come to the land of Israel, you need uh, to, to have somebody help you get a good trip. And Rabbi Mo Kaplan uh, and Kaplan Custom Tours will help you. Mo Kaplan and gmail.com, they will organize for you. They're deep into Sukkot already right now, and they're organizing of, of great VIP trips, shul trips, school trips, bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, the whole thing. Uh, Mo Kaplan at gmail.com. Uh, Kosher Cycle Tours will take your aliens if they have feet, and will uh, and will like ET and will help you. Like ET didn't have feet, so kind of he was he in didn't that. Have feet? Uh, he had feet, but he, he needed to be in that. Mobile. He needed to be in that box in that in box. The, little, in the, the, the bike basket thing. The bike basket. So uh, if you're ET and you need a bike basket, uh, koshercycletours.com will take you to the land of Israel and abroad in, in kosher and style. Uh, and that's koshercycletours.com on beautiful bicycles in the land of Israel. I'm going to go on a trip with Kosher Cycle Tours very soon. So that's really great. Uh, and, of course, you're going to need to nosh something. So our good friends at prohibitionpickle.co.il will make it awesome and delicious for you uh, with great Jewish uh, food. Not kosher style, but really kosher. Uh, and will feed even that hungry alien. Uh, so there you go. Um, this, is a weird, this is a weird theme. It is a weird theme, but we're on vacation, so that's okay. Uh, next is, uh, speaking of aliens, uh, there are artists in this world, and they see the world differently. Uh, they really make our world beautiful, and also uh, they have impressions from what the world, how the world should appear, could appear, does appear. And we have our own art school in Israel called Betzalel, and it's got a long history and great tradition, Malka. Did you know that, the Betzalel Art School? Yes, I did. Uh, our own Ben Bresky has made a, a little history moment and interviews with some of the young artists at the Betzalel Art School in Jerusalem. Ben Bresky, take it away. This is a moment in Jewish history. 
The Betzalel Academy of Arts and Design was founded in 1906 in Jerusalem by Boris Schatz. The old stone building still stands today on the corner of Betzalel and Schatz Street, and today houses the Department of Architecture. I have been there many times and was always struck by an image in the entrance of Boris Schatz meeting Betzalel from the Bible, the chief artisan of the Jewish people and the man appointed to design the tabernacle. Representing the school's philosophy of combining the modern with an appreciation for history. Last week, I attended the graduate student exhibition held at the new Betzalel building, which houses the other departments and was open this year. Located in the historic Russian compound area, I met the ingenious young students of the Department of Industrial Design. I saw a flying defibrillator, smart clothing woven from e-textile. A watch for blind people and more artistic inventions. You will hear from the students shortly. I also spoke to the head of the industrial design department, Professor Ido Bruno, who has been teaching there since the 1990s. Professor Bruno is a great nephew of Samuel Hershenberg, the noted artist who was personally recruited by Schatz to teach at the school over 100 years ago. Professor Bruno was a student himself there, as was his mother, and now his nephew, making the family four generations affiliated with Betzalel. Back in 1906, the school taught traditional sculpture and painting, and had workshops in silver, leather, wood, brass, and fabric. Many of the students, like Schatz, were Jews from Eastern Europe who were escaping persecution. Other craftsmen were Yemenite Jewish silversmiths who had a long tradition in Yemen of working in silver and gold. Betzala was forced to close in 1929 due to financial difficulties, but when the Nazis came to power, it reopened, and in 1935 it had attracted many teachers and students from Germany. For many years, besides the historic building on Betzala Street. Most of the classes were held on Mount Scopus at the campus of Hebrew University until this year, when the school returns to the city center, and that's where I arrived to a brand new glass and steel building tucked in between the towering Russian church and historic Russian compound prison. Inside was a dazzling display of unique clothing, glasswork, innovative animated films and video games, paintings and ceramics. But I was drawn to the practical inventions in the Department of Industrial Design. Here are some of the graduate students I met. My name is Rafael Amzalag. I created an ultralight backpacking tent. I wanted to find a new way to create a construction without using regular poles for the tent. So automatically, I was pushed into the category of hiking pole tents, which are tents that are held by the trekking or hiking poles, and are pinned in the ground. The goal was to create the tent that will weigh the least, and will also give you a good experience of sleeping in it. So it's the biggest tent in its category, and weighs just under a kilo, 872 grams. That inclu includes the stakes. In the daytime, you walk with your hiking poles, and then you、uh, use them for your base construction of the tent. If you have two tents, you can merge them together to create a shared space that you can cook in, or talk, or sit after the tent. It has a lot more features that are included. In. How long does it take to put up?、Uh, it takes about a few experience at it, and the soil is 
it's not too hard. Then it could take uh, between 30 seconds to, to a minute. But if it's uh, it's a bit harder than maybe like uh, three, four minutes. So I usually uh, like to carry a small backpack when I go travel outside of the country. You can see here later uh, the small backpack I take. It, it goes with me on the plane. So the goal is to save as much room and weight as possible. That's what I wanted to do with this tent, to make the smallest and most compact tent the lightest that I can get to. And also, I'm, a, I'm kind of a big guy, so I like to have my space inside a tent. So I wanted the tent to be spacious when I sleep in it and not be uh, cramped and small. And tell us about Betsalel and, you know, what you thought about the classes over these past four years and the different things you built. A lot of the stuff I built have been for backpacking and for hiking. Not everything, because I, I wanted to try other fields too. But they basically taught me how to take an idea and find if it's relevant for the outside and the real world. And how to create a real functioning product from it. That's what I uh, did also here and also in the past four years I've been in this degree. My name is Mayan Cohen Baron. Endometriosis is a chronic disease that affects one of ten women. The average period of the time to diagnose the disease is about 11 years. In my project, I made underwear, smart underwear with e-textile that can help self-diagnose the disease. It also has heating pads inside so it will help the pain. And you sewed this stuff and designed it? Yes, I did. The shape is based on the symbol of endometriosis. It's like breast cancer, but in yellow. Red flowers are kind of what the disease looks in reality. So you took something that's a sickness and you made it pretty? Yes, I did. I have also endometriosis. It took 15 years to diagnose me so it's my biggest victory <laughs> and uh, I'm happy to finish Betalel with this disease it's not so easy I have a lot of pain especially to do something good from my bad experience it's what I wanted to do and I did it and did you talk to doctors or who else did you work with on designing this? First of all, my research started when I thought I'm sick. So I have like 10 years of research I did on myself. And of course, I went to doctors, I interviewed them, and I talked with a lot of companies that make underwear for periods. That's how I chose the fabrics and the technologies in it. What do you think about Betzalel now that you're graduating? I'm from Jerusalem, so all of my life I've heard about Betzalel. I'm very happy to finish in this new beautiful building. Anything else you want to say about your project or Betzalel or anything? I think one of the most important things I did in my projects is to people to know about endometriosis. It's very common, one in ten women has it. It's very painful and if you know what you have, it can change your life. My name is Ran Stub. 
it's a defibrillator. First purpose of the defibrillator is not to be used in the city, it should be used out the city. And it's to have places that are inaccessible and to bring the, the ability for the first aid for a heart attack, for example, to solve the problem that there are today. I came to the idea with a story about my father that died, that passed away in 2004 because of riding a bicycle and it was here on the mountain in Jerusalem and the ambulance just flipped over on the side and it took so much time to bring the first response to the person. And with my hobby that I'm today flying in a remote control airplanes, I combined all of them together to be able to fly in the first stage of the drone. It flies most like a missile, long-range missile, this is the correct name of it, and to be able to land as a drone, as a multi-rotor, with a precise landing, with a soft landing, and then the defibrillator has two handles on the sides that you can carry him for the last mile, as we say so, closer to the person who is uh, injured and then you will be able to attach the pads on him and to apply the defibrillator. This is the main issue when it can be reached up to 18, up to 15 kilometers. With a speed of 300 kilometers per hour, it will take approximately two and a half minutes. In the overall, the critical time is four up to five minutes to help a person. If we will reach up to five minutes, we will be able to save 70% of the people that have heart attack. Okay, so I'm, I'm in a nature trail in the middle of a park and I'm having a heart attack and I call the paramedics and the paramedics fly in this device True. and then I attach it to myself or no, how does... Uh, yeah. As for today, there is no... You won't be able to attach it by yourself because you are in hard condition so it always be necessary even in the city for the second person. So the second person call MADA, for example, in Israel then MADA choose to launch the rocket. Then the rocket receive the place. The second person take the drone closer to the person. He attach the pads on the body of the person who is having a heart attack. And then we need the second person to activate. But even if I'm on a camping trip, maybe, and there's other people. True. True. If there are different people who can help you and to make, let's say, to help you with the last mile of it, so there is no problem, because you don't need to make a lot of things of it. The door is designed to be opened very fast without any hinge or something that might, uh, let's say, stop you with doing it fast. And then you just need to uh, attach the pads and then you are ready to go. It means you can electric the, the person and then, like a normal defibrillator, it works. So my name is Yoni, and the watch is called the uh, Chronoline. It's basically a touch-based design for the blind. The main principle of its existence, you can get blind at any age from a variety of different reasons. Well, the watches that exist for the blind today are somewhat lacking in design and in comfort. The most common watches are talking watches that are impractical if you try to use them in a very, very noisy environment, but they're very, very inconvenient if you try to use them in a very quiet environment, like a meeting or an appointment or something like that. So the idea here is to make an intuitive design that will allow people with blindness or visually impaired to be able to read the time 
without having to learn a, a different language that is Braille. The watch face is basically lines that goes up and down according to the time, and you just feel it by touch. I designed it with uh, multiple people that experience blindness in various stages. With their feedback, I created this design. Does it move? Does it tick? So I can show you here the video. The way it works is that there are several uh, small servo motors that uh, push up and down uh, lines. And that way you can just oh. move your finger on top of the surface and you can literally feel the time as it goes by. And as you can see, there are two rings. The inner ring is a bit longer, that represents the hours, and the shorter ring is representing of the minutes. And in times that aren't in groups of fives, let's say two and two minutes, for example, two lines actually rose up. And that way you can tell if you're late or if you're early, or you can have like a graphic visualization of the time. And that's something that is lacking in existing watches for the blind. Very interesting. I think I'm impressed by the practical aspects of a lot of these projects in the industrial design floor, like yours, for example. Thanks. I mean, it means a lot. What, what do you think of Betzalel now that you're graduating? Well, I think that Betzalel is a wonderful greenhouse for designers. I mean, what it actually allows us to do is not only think about industrial design as a method to produce products, but also as a method to examine the world around us and try to see if design can be utilized both as art and both in other practical ways. And it doesn't limit us. So that's the main thing that I like about Betzalel. What do you think about Betzalel? Betzalel, for me it was amazing to explore a lot of things I love when it's, it's here, you know. This is the first year that we are in the middle of the city center. And I think Jerusalem is a thing, you know, in the world for us as a Jewish and a lot of culture. And I think design and art, we have a mission. And I think when it's here, for us, it's better. What is this place? What is the meaning to design things and what is the impact about people and I think we have a mission we can do money <laughs> and try to survive this reality but for me it means a lot to be here in Israel in this time in Jerusalem and we have a mission in this world to make it better also Thank you to the students that I was able to meet, and I regret not being able to interview more. The graduate exhibition is open until August 18th. Thank you to the students and Betzalel School. Thank you to Yishai Fleischer. Thank you to all the listeners, and Shalom. All right, we're back here on the Yishai Fleischer Show. Yishai and Malka sitting on a balcony overlooking the beautiful Mediterranean it's so beautiful here. It's so, on the one hand, calming. On the other hand, so historic. And I could see Gaza in the distance. And I could see where the Philistines used to live uh, uh, close by here. There's a, there's a mound of a Philistine town. But there's tremendous history in this town. Um, and you could buy your own part of the land. 
if, uh, if God will give you that blessing. And you probably need to do some money transfers. So check out money transfer at change86 Adar Currencies. Yossi, change86 at gmail.com. Yossi, Y-O-S-S-I, change86 at gmail.com. I highly recommend them. I use them myself. Maka, first thing, I'm, I hope you're really enjoying vacation. You're doing a great job swimming those waves. Yeah, waves is not like my number one best thing, but I'm getting a little bit better trying to conquer my fear. I think it's scarier for me as the sun goes down. That feels scarier to me. I like it when it's like bright out. You know, you got a lot of like lifeguards and whatnot. <laughs> but anyway, um, I just want to say, you know, we had that conversation earlier about the um, the um, Jewish guy from Sderot that you met at the shoe store. You know, we never have experienced what that was like, you know, going living in Sterot, especially he was a young guy. Like when he was a child, there were rockets like daily in Sterot and they would be they would have to run, you know, like not just when he was a child, but also pretty right, recently. Right. Pretty. Re- it happens periodically here. Um, and that's really, really, really not OK. Um, and, you know, when he's talked about how like their parents told you, like, don't worry, one day the rockets will stop and then everything will be quiet. We're, I just, I just want to say that that was not a lie. It's true that the parents were not able to make that happen for their children um, in the short term, you know. And here we have a young man who um, is not even sure if he want, like, feels like he can raise children here because of all that he went through as a child living in these like high impact um, fighting areas. But I want to say that his parents were correct. One day that we are going to have a an end to the violence. And part of what we are doing here is to work toward that. Um, you know, it's so easy today to be part of a... Everyone, everyone, of course, wants to live well. And there's nothing bourgeois about wanting to live in safety. Nothing. It's, it's your, you deserve it. It's your right to live in safety. That being said, you know, we can't live in like a service industry head. Right. You can't live in a, in a mindset which is like, well, is it all produced and ready for me and the perfect packaging that I want so that I can take it home and possibly on sale? Is it all like ready for me exactly as I want it? That is not what this project is. If you want to be part of the project of Israel, then you have to understand that you have to put forth some personal sacrifice and God willing, it won't be too big. Bezrat Hashem, we all pray that the sacrifices aren't too hard. But everyone has to put forth some kind of sacrifice, right? That the, 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 the real estate is expensive, that, that, that you do have to live with an extra security mindset, that, you know, the politics can be infuriating and backwards and you can't understand why it's so hard to progress, things like that. You have to live with the frustrations because we are on a long path towards success. And who knows when we'll get to the end of that path, but it, it's... It's sad that, the, you know, this man's mother wasn't able to deliver on her promise that the rockets um, will stop one day. And that's that's all of our faults. And it's definitely the government's fault. Um, but I believe that one day all the parents will be able to say, see, we told you one day it will be better. And here it is. And then we'll have all been so proud to have been part of that and to have been here through the growing pains of the state of Israel. Great points, Malka. Great points. I discussed some of these points and others uh, on a recent video cast with Doug Altabeth, who is the chairman of Im Tirtzu, one of my favorite organizations in Israel, a campus organization standing up for a Jewish Israel, and uh, they're very active. 
And so I sat down with Doug Altabef for a long-form interview about the challenges of Hebron, about Judea and Samaria, Jewish rights in the land of Israel, uh, and our, our governmental efforts to move things in the right direction uh, at whatever pace they can manage. In any case, uh, here is my discussion with Doug Altabef at Im Tirtzu. Welcome to Im Tirtzu's Salon for Zionist Thought. I'm Doug Altabef, the chairman of the board of Im Tirtzu, and this is a very special day for me. It's a thrill, it's a pleasure to have as my guest, an old friend, uh, a man who I would say embodies the passion, the joy, the awareness of what it means to be here in the land of Israel. And as you will hear from Yishai Fleischer, uh, he is not just in the land of Israel, but he is in ground zero in the land of Israel, in the community of Hebron, where he is a very active uh, international spokesman and development officer, and also working on behalf of the Hebron Fund, which we at Im Tirtzu are pleased and proud to have a wonderful association with over the years. So welcome, welcome. It's a pleasure to see you. Thank to you, have Doug. You. Thank Great you. Great to be with you here. And uh, let's start with you. How did you get to be the Yishai Fleischer that we know about today? As usual, it comes from the parents. Uh, my parents were uh, refuseniks, Russian refuseniks. Mm -hmm. uh, and people of your generation fought to get the people of my parents' generation uh, out of the Soviet Union. And they were behind uh, that, uh, those, th that, that closed-off country. People so this is the early 90s, right? No. Before that, that first generation, yeah, they the were, early my parents, 70s. My, exactly. My parents got ah. out in 72. Wow, wow, 72. Wow, wow. They okay. were some of the first. Very good. Uh, and Same. they were some of the first to push that whole agenda. Uh, and they remember all the efforts of, uh, that American Jewry yes. made in order to, to free Russian Jewry. Uh, I think sometimes I think that that's one of the crowning achievements of American Jewry. Yes. You know, uh, that, that movement to get the Russian Jews out. So, um, 72, they came to Israel, and they lived here in Israel for many years, and then for economic and other reasons, they moved to America. Mm. Uh, and in America, immediately I felt that, that I was gonna, I had to go back to the homeland uh, and serve in the army. And when I got to be 17 years old, that's what happened. I went to yeshiva, and then I went to the army. I left America by myself, and I came back here by myself, and I spent a lot of years uh, here as a lone soldier. Um, and, um, but another thing happened along the way was that we found more Judaism in America. We were, my parents were Russian Jews, uh, but they were not plugged into Yiddishkeit, Judaism. Mm -hmm. But as often happens, not always, some people assimilate out, but other people yearn for that Jewish connection mm -hmm. and then turn away from Israeliness and turn more towards Jewishness mm -hmm. in America. And that's what happened to us. And they sent me to Jewish school and I took to it. I took to it. I, I found it to be exciting, and, and uh, I believed in God. And, and but I, you melded your Jewishness with your with your Israeliness by coming yeah. back here. Well, t to me, to me, that's a. It's actually not so so complex. It's actually mm -hmm. seems obvious. Right. We're a peoplehood. We have a Torah. We have a homeland. Right. And our homeland is the most exciting part of the story since uh, we've been waiting for this opportunity to mm -hmm. resettle and rebuild our homeland 
for a long time and so to me it was just exciting I, I, you want to be part of it you don't want to miss it mm -hmm. it's like that's sometimes my argument with some uh, American Jews I just say to them don't you want to be where the action is mm. forget like everything else just that's where the action is it's hot mm -hmm. and speaking of where the action is how did you get involved with Hebron well it, it took a few steps it took a few steps uh, the first step was that it, I, I finished the army in yeshiva and I went back to America mm. to yeshiva university Mm. My father came to me in Israel and he said, listen, you have a sister and brother growing up without you. Come, come back to America mm. for a few years. And I went to Yeshiva University and then I stayed there for Cardozo Law School. Mm. Now, when I was at Yeshiva University, I had just been to the army in Israeli Yeshiva and I was surprised how little Israel had an impact in New York City for New York Jews and Yeshiva University. Mm. And this prompted me to start a pro-Zionist mm. organization. That was the first thing that I, that I started doing. It was called Kuma, which means arise. And uh, that was an Aliyah organization that we started the last year of college. And we kept pushing that stuff uh, for a long time in New York City. And really a lot of people that are my friends here today in Israel are products of that push mm. back then. So I was, uh, I was in New York City and I was, I was pushing Aliyah and Zionism. And then we were at law school. And at the law school we were planning to, uh, uh, I planned to go back to Israel. Um, and then uh, my father passed away. And then Arutz Sheva... Israel National News, Israel National Radio reached out to me and said, you know, uh, this was through Providence, you know, do you want a job with us? And if you want a job, you got to make it out here to Beit El. I'm like, where is that? <laughs> Never even heard of that. <laughs> and, uh, and connected with Beit El and with Arut Sheva, who gave me that first start. And they wanted me to be the head of their radio station. And so I was there and that started me on the awareness of another issue which is Jewish rights in the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. Oh, at law school, I met a girl. And uh, that girl's name was uh, Melissa at the time. Later, she became Malka. Uh, and uh, that girl, we decided to get married. And we came to Israel to Hebron, to the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs, to get married there. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of the connection mm -hmm. specifically with Hebron. But at Sheva, I learned a lot of the issues of, of the rights of Jews in Judea and Samaria. And I learned the players. Who were the players? Who were the who were the? And you know, I see behind you. There's a picture of uh, Mordechai Kedar, mm -hmm. uh, other players, people like that who were just part of the the, the scene. Uh, and I, and I, I learned the lingo. I learned the issues. And so I became you know I, I became versed in a few different tracks. One is to spread Judaism. Another one is to is spread Zionism, but especially Jewish rights in the land of Israel. And, and calling American Jewry and other Jewry to come be part of it one way or, another, or the other. Many of our viewers are very aware of Arutsheva because it is the consistently reliable pro-Zionist media outlet right. uh, for English speakers, also in Hebrew, right. of course. But uh, I have the uh, pleasure of writing uh, for them, as do you occasionally, and uh, they, they do a great job. You know, it turns out that media is very important because it's, it's almost like the food that you eat. It's what you consume yeah. daily. So for me, uh, IsraelNationalNews.com is absolutely key. I also like JewishPress.com mm -hmm. and I like JNS.org, my good friend Alex Trayman, my mm -hmm. good friend uh, JNS.org, it's Stephen Levitt at, uh, at JewishPress.com. These guys are doing great work right. and they're helping people. I, I push that on my podcasts right. and my stuff because right. people need to, to consume good, healthy right. media. Okay, we're, we're going to touch on that, but I want to focus a, a bit on Hebron itself, because 
at some point besides your wedding, you did gravitate to Hebron. You became ensconced in Hebron. And Hebron is uh, a major, major, major focus for the Jewish people. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Give, give our uh, viewers a sense of not only the historic importance of Hebron, but the current importance of Hebron, what it means for the Jewish people. Historically speaking, Hebron is the first purchase of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Abraham purchased the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs. That is the first recorded purchase 3,700 years ago. It's very important, uh, just on that level. Uh, then it is the place where the founders of our peoplehood are buried. So that's Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. Leah. Uh, Rachel, Rachel, is buried at the tomb of Rachel. That's a story. But the point is, is that the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Hebron is this place that is the uh, shrine of Jewish peoplehood. Yeah. Uh, later, Caleb comes there and is against the other spies and uh, brings back a positive report. Finally, King David rules in Hebron for seven years before he moves to Jerusalem. After being crowned <laughs> king of all of Israel in Hebron, he moves to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. but, but Hebron is, it was, is the first capital of Israel. Hebron is the place where, uh, instead of the shrine where you connect to God, it's the shrine where you connect, uh, in Jerusalem, it's the shrine where you connect to the peoplehood. Mm -hmm. That's in Hebron. Uh, and well, excuse me, what you said is very, very important. Abraham has promised the land of Israel not necessarily to be realized in his lifetime. It isn't, as we know, but what he does in his lifetime on his own initiative is to purchase a piece of the land of right. Israel. And that becomes, if, if I'm right, something of, uh, of a role model for uh, how we have settled this land. We have not waited for it to just be bestowed upon us, but we have taken an active role in purchasing, in, in settling, in moving into, in building the land ourselves. Right. There's sometimes you battle for the land and sometimes you just settle the land. Uh, but the purchase is a, there's, no, there's, no, there's not going to be any disagreement. Mm -hmm. The previous people sold it. And uh, the sages say that, they're, that, that, that the forefathers purchased three plots in the land of Israel, and that was Abraham purchased in Hebron, uh, Jacob purchased in Shechem, mm -hmm. in Nab, so-called Nablus, uh, and David purchased on the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and these are key holds in the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. Three positions, Hebron, Shechem, mm -hmm. Shechem, in the center of Jerusalem. And if you hold on to these three, you're really holding on to the, to the land of mm -hmm. Israel. Hebron uh, mm -hmm. is also seen, Hebron, unlike other places, Hebron has had continuous Jewish presence throughout the land. 1540, a great synagogue was built uh, in Hebron. In, in and Jews lived in Hebron throughout all these times until the 1929 riots, right. which are really a preamble to the Holocaust. Yes. Okay? Yeah. And, and, uh, and Jews are kicked the Mufti. out. Starring the Mufti. Uh, Hajimin al-Husseini, and, um, and he was an evil man, he was the predecessor of, of Yasser Arafat, and had that same way of thinking, uh, created the idea of Palestinian nationalism in order to uh, effectuate ethnic cleansing of the Jews. Yes, and he was a big devotee of Hitler. Yes. And, and in fact, there are stories that he uh, lobbied heavily with Hitler to think about an extermination of the Jews in the Middle East, uh, as well as the ones in Europe. So, right, well, he, he actually ki helped kill 40,000 Jews in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. 
he basically went to Europe and became a mufti of the, the Muslim Nazis. Mm. Mm. Uh, and yes, he had a plan to create an extermin extermination camp in Dotan, which is northwest of Shechem. And they, mm -hmm. the plans have been found and, and, and the documents have been uncovered. The bottom line is when the British stopped Rommel at El Alamein, it was very important because ha had they not stopped him, mm. the Nazis would have, yes. would have planned that uh, right. extermination camp. So Hebron has great significance. And I would argue, and I think you would agree, that it has great significance for all Jews, not necessarily just observant Jews, not necessarily uh, aware Jews, but it is really very much a part of our birthright, of our heritage. Um, so how in, can in, in some ways, in some ways, Hebron is even more geared towards a person who's not connected to the Bible or to Jewish law or observancy. So let's talk about that. How? Because it's nationalism. It's, yeah. it's the peoplehood. Okay, so, so I'm, I'm a secular guy living in Haifa where you were born. Uh, and I will tell you that Imtir Tzu regularly brings busloads of tourists, students mostly, to Hebron who have never been there before to get tours from the likes of Yishai Fleischer and his compatriots. Uh, and they're blown away. They're, they're deeply affected by Hebron. So what is that, that tie to, that all of us can participate in, can take part in? You know, you, you know Doug, as a thinker, I really like to reduce things to simple, to simple phrases. Mm -hmm. It's really simple. It's, it's just Jewish history. Jewish history has happened there for the last 3,800 years. Mm -hmm. It's just that simple. Abraham lived there and the forefathers lived there and then Jews kept living there. Mm -hmm. uh, Some time ago, before I was working for Hebron, Peace Now came to protest in Hebron to try to ethnically cleanse the Jews from there. Mm -hmm. So I, I, was, I was just, uh, I think I was working at Arut Sheva, and I, I came there with posters. I had to decide what to make in the posters. I could have put anything on the posters. But I wrote, Abba Kavur Po, father is buried here. Mm -hmm. And I wrote, Ima Kvura Po, mother is buried here. Mm -hmm. And the next day, that was on the front page of Haaretz. Because mm -hmm. that was the message. It's mm -hmm. like, this is Jewish history. This is where we're from. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're from, if you're, if you're observant. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Because if you believe in Jewish peoplehood, or you believe in history, or you believe in indigeneity, you can connect to this place and be like, wow, you know, like Jewish people have lived yes. here and have been an ethnic majority, or at times an ethnic minority, but they're from this town. They're from this place. It's tied into our very narrative DNA. Right. And the people who live in Hebron today, the community, are very aware people, very plugged in people. Of course, they are demonized as settlers. You know, this is the, uh, the negative term of art. But um, why is that? What are they doing? They're doing something very important on behalf of the rest of us. Uh, and uh, give us a sense of the, the strength of the current Jewish community in Hebron? Well, the people that showed up there are, are quite ideological. Uh, and they were the first. One, there was another one, Kedumim at the same time, with the Sebastia and the Samaria people, but basically Hebron was, was really the first push towards the rights of the Jewish people to re-inherit the land after the Six-Day War. You know, the government got all this land in the Six-Day War, but they didn't know exactly what to do with it. Should we give it back for peace? Or should, we, or should we take it up? Mm -hmm. And there were Jews that were said, it's time to go back and, and get these, this is the heart of our heartland. This is, the, this is the place where we're from. Our forefathers and mothers didn't know about Tel Aviv. They knew about Hebron. They knew about Beit El. 
They knew about, uh, you know, so-called East Jerusalem, i.e. Jerusalem. Uh, and so, so uh, they, they moved down there and they were very ideological and they still ideological. You know, I'm always amazed the children of the generation that, that settled Hebron, resettled, right, uh, are all in the, in the tough places and settling the land. They, they, get, they really got that ideology yeah. very strongly. Uh, uh, and, and we've also faced a lot of very tangible terror and hate and, and, yeah. and violence. And so the people also had to have physical courage, not just ideological courage, not just discomfort because you didn't have hot water in the shower, but also really facing bullets and stabbings. And, and the enemy was very uh, set on trying to get rid of us from there. Still are. Uh, today, in a different form, they have a different way of operating. Uh, but they, they tried very much in the beginning to completely just terrorize the community, and they stuck it out. And I always say, if we were Christians, if we were Christians, we're not. But if we were, we'd be called Knights of the Machpelah, mm-hmm. Knights of the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs. We're the community that, yeah. goes, that goes, buttresses the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs mm-hmm. and stays put there. The demonization is a very popular uh, sport, demonization of the Jewish community, their demonization of the idea that, that Jews are in Hebron. Uh, there are tours regularly given, as you well know, by Breaking the Silence that uh, are designed to show that somehow this Jewish community has usurped the poor Palestinians. What they never do is to do what you do, which is to take tour groups up to the top of the highest building in Jewish Hebron, so that you see Muslim Hebron. That's right. And so you see a city of a quarter of a million people, and what you realize is what the Jewish community is, is the flea on the tail of the dog. It ain't the dog. Right. All right? There is a very big dog right next door. But this is all part of an attempt to distort, to delegitimize. And how do you deal with that? Well... Uh, let, let's let's t- when you started explaining, let's take that analysis just one step further. Uh, one uh, meaning broader, and then we bring it back to Hebron. Uh, one of the things that they managed to do, the anti-Israel uh, narrative warriors, is what they've managed to do is they've managed to create an idea that Israel is not fighting with the Arab world; it's fighting with small Palestine. So it's not tiny Israel amongst uh-huh. 22 Arab countries. It's big, you know, mechanized Israel against organic, natural, people of the land, Palestine. Mm. So that reframing has been very successful for them. It's, it's fake, it's faux, you know, and, and we, have, we still have regional enemies, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah armed by Iran, and we have still threats from, you know, from Syria, and, and, and uh, we, have, we have jihadist threats even in, in Jordan and abroad in Iraq and ISIS and, and, and from Africa. We, we have a lot of these threats, but the regional picture has been erased by people that want to redraw it and make, they, they're reversing the David and Goliath yes. narrative. That's their right. thing. Now, the same thing for Hebron. We're a tiny community of about 1,000 Jews amongst 250, 220,000 Arabs, uh, most of whom are Hamas. There's a big Hamas presence. Uh, you're right, the city itself is 20 square kilometers. And here's another weird part of it all. It's a very wealthy city. Mm. It's one of the wealthiest cities. So the way that the anti-Israel narrative folks do it is that they'll give you a tour within the Jewish ghetto Right. Show you a closed Arab store. Right. Oh, they've yeah. been displaced. And they've been displaced and the whole thing. Now, now, all you have to do is, is have a you know, bird's eye view and you're like, wait a minute. Right. 
The Jewish community is a tiny defended ghetto. Yeah. And this brings me to one more point, which is we have to be able to say the truth and say it clearly. Israel is an armed ethnic minority in the region. An armed ethnic minority. That's what we are. Yes, our country is relatively successful, but what it is still is an armed ethnic minority in a big Arab region. Yeah. Thank God there are Arabs coming around now. There's the Abraham Accords, which I'm a big fan of. But still, Israel is an armed ethnic minority. So too are Jews of Hebron. We're an armed ethnic minority uh, trying to succeed and, 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 and thrive in a, in a city where our forefathers and mothers are buried, where, where our history uh, is found. And we have to just kind of say it for what it is. Uh, and the anti-Israel narrative is trying to flip it, make us into the aggressive majority, trying to destroy the life mm. of, of an indigenous minority. The community knows that they are doing something very important on behalf of Am Yisrael. They are yeah. maintaining continuity. They are keeping the faith, so to speak. They are keeping the torch lit of the Jewish connection to Hebron and Hebron's ability to animate us. That's right. So. Um, the community has had a couple of nice achievements recently in terms of getting some approvals for more building. Tell us a little bit about that. Israel's uh, p polity, uh, the citizenship, is moving more towards the religious and to the nationalist. And so our governments are reflective of that. And with time, uh, we are seeing more and more recognition of the centrality of places like Hebron to our tradition and really to the foundations of Israel. You know, you know, people don't think about that, but Israel is its whole proof for its right is based on its history. Yeah. So Hebron, Hebron is a key exhibit pillar. A. Exactly, <laughs> exhibit a, exactly. And by the way, Sharon at the end of his life, Ariel Sharon, Prime Minister Sharon, said, I made a mistake. I focused too much on security and not enough about narrative in our history and our and our rights. He said, and I should have taken people to Hebron. He, he, write, he told that to mm -hmm. Ari Shavit. Um, what was the question exactly you said? Well, the, I'm asking about some of the recent developments ah, that's in right. terms of that's new right. construction and that's new right. development. Well, one piece of development, which, which I didn't think would be such a big deal, but I'm, I'm being thanked for every day, is yeah. the elevator. The elevator. We have an elevator now into the uh, hall ah, of the, yes, yes, uh, right. the Tomb of the Patriarchs and the Matriarchs. And a lot of people, have, I saw a, some, a couple came in the other day and they told me, they said, we've been waiting for this for mm -hmm. years. And they came in, she was in a walker and mm -hmm. he was with a cane. And, and, and so just that has been a big political achievement, took a long time to do that. Uh, furthermore, uh, we've gotten the right to develop a Jewish property from, that's been owned by Jews for 200 years. And we're now developing 31 apartments. It's called, uh, it's called Rova Chizkiah, the Chizkiah Quarter and the Chabad neighborhood, it's got two names because of its history. Uh, and we're actually, um, uh, we're actually selling apartments for the first time. So 31 apartments probably means you can grow the population by a good 15% or so, right? That's, that's right, we, we, uh, we have um, even more, even yeah. more. Uh, we Depending have, on the size yeah, of the families who are coming we have, in. We, it's it's gonna certainly be a big increase that's great. Uh, for, uh, uh, for the Jewish community, and I think our website is uh, myhebron.co.il, and people could uh, really purchase mm -hmm. uh, an apartment. It's very exciting, and it's in Tabu. It is recognized as as land owned by Jews in uh, in uh, what's it called in title. Yes, and so that's very exciting. And there are many other uh, achievements we, we're pushing forward, and and we're very excited about that. And it's good to focus on the good. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I must say that the enemy is not asleep, and the Fayad plan which means that the Palestinian movement wants to build around Jewish communities and choke them, uh, is in full swing. Mm. 
-hmm. and they build very quickly with PA assistance. And so uh, the Jewish community is, is doing and is building, but at the rate that we're building and the rate that they're building, uh, they're, they're building faster. Are they, are they building illegally? Is that why it's faster? Or are they so heavily funded yeah. by the EU that uh, they, money's not an issue? Their, their whole building is, is political building. Yeah. It, the word illegally doesn't fit because the PA, which is the de facto ruler, sadly, our, our, our country gave away parts of the sovereignty of the heartland of Israel to the enemies of Israel. Yeah. You know, when I'm on an airplane, Gentiles, Goyim, the nations, turn to me and they say to me, like, why do you give your land away to your enemies? Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah. So, so the simple analysis is, that's just dumb. Don't give your land away to your right. enemies. When I said illegally, I was referring to parts of air, uh, Area C yeah. that are technically under our domain. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there is, and of course there is a lot of illegal construction going on in Area C. The, the, they are on a very, the, 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 the PA is on a serious battle to take away all of Judea and Samaria mm -hmm. from Israel. Mm -hmm. And Israel's response is uh, mixed. Mixed. That's you, being kind. Right, that's being kind. Uh, you know, we have very strong uh, a nationalist camp that is trying to hold onto the land and settle it. We have amazing farmers and these right. youth, these shepherds. You know, they're, they're just heroes. Uh, but, but, but at times they're treated as criminals and the international, the, the parts of the international <clears throat> community, you know, the, the part that, that let's call the Euro, what I call, what I call the Euro Jihad Axis. Mm -hmm. Western Europe jihad axis, they are funding <clears throat> the land grab on the other side, the Palestinian yes. land grab, and they are besmirching uh, the Jewish claims to the land. Yes. Well, part of the uh, besmirching is this very negative term, settler. Settler mm -hmm. connotes a, an occupier, a usurper, someone who was moved in to take something that's not really their own. Right. And... Uh, I want to just go back to you for a minute. You said something very interesting, and that is that the children of the uh, Hebron community basically are brought up with the spirit of uh, moving into difficult places and, and planting the flag and doing important work. It seems to me that you yourself have learned and, and you, you have, have branched out from your experience with Hebron to become what I would call a key uh, influencer about Judea and Samaria at large and uh, talking about as you just did a minute ago some of the key uh, pressures that we are facing in Judea and Samaria uh, it's it's remarkable and I'm sure many of our visitors uh, viewers rather have have experienced this firsthand you drive around in the Shomron and you meet amazing people incredible people and, and you know, you'll read about the, the evil settlers, the Nas. These are people who are the backbone of the Jewish people. That's right. And, and so there is such a disconnect. And it's, and it's to our shame, our collective shame, that we do not uh, honor these people for, right. for their role, for their efforts, for their bravery, uh, their s steadfastness. Uh, you know a lot more about Beitel than you did when you first went there, I'm sure. There are a lot of communities that I'm sure you have been exposed to based on your 
uh, experience with Hebron. Give us a sense of what the mood of the people is in, uh, as you see it in, uh, in Judea and Samaria. First thing, their mood is better than the people in Tel Aviv for one simple reason, the weather is much better, right? <laughs> the, 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 the Jews that we talk about, Judea and Samaria, it's important to understand that it's mountainous area. Yeah. And it's, the, it's, in, it's, it's a mountain region within the center of the country. And, and an interesting thing, when you stand, I was just uh, on Shabbat at Har Bracha, uh, community of Har Bracha, uh, and at my friends uh, Hayovel, the organization. That yeah, brings, Tommy Waller. Tommy Waller, which brings uh, yeah. Christian volunteers to Israel. And the view from there is just, is, it's just breathtaking. Right. And another thing that happens there is that you see the coastal plain so clearly below yeah. you. And if you have any sense of military strategy, a strategy, strategy <laughs> if you have even the tiniest sense of it, right. you're like, this high point right. controls that low point. Right. Why would I ever give right. this away? But when you're on the Tel Aviv beach and you turn around and you see those mountains far away, you're like, those mountains are, who, who knows what's over there? Yeah, you who know? needs them? Yeah, right. who needs that? It's like a right. mess over there, right. you know? Right. And it's, that's, that, it's just that visual is exactly uh, correspondent to uh, the different feelings that we have. Like when you're, when you're on those mountaintops, you're like, I am Israel. We need to control this. I protect the lowlands. Mm -hmm. And of course, the histories here and the spiritualities here on this mountain range. Um, but sadly, today uh, there are people who don't understand that. I, I think I think the truth is is that things are going in the right direction, and that's actually one of the causes of the big rift that's happening in Israel today. The problem is things are going in the right yes. direction, and the folks on the secular left, or let's right. call it post-Zionist, yes. Not everybody, people get very offended. Not everybody on the secular yes. left is post-Zionist, but I'm talking, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm do. talking about the post-Zionist uh, uh, hard left is realizing that the country is moving towards the nationalist and towards the right and towards the religious, yes. the traditional, and they're freaking out yes. because their country is evolving into what Israel was always going to be, yes. which was a state, the Jewish state. The first state. <laughs> or, uh, well, to them, they want us to be Denmark. Right, uh, a Euro state. Yeah. That's right. And, and we want this to be the Jewish state, That's the right. Jewish state. That's right. And I was at a rally, and Imtir Tzu's Matan Pelag was speaking. And he started, he spoke, you know, everybody speaks, but then he started to chant. And he said, Ha'am rotze medina yehudit. Yeah. Yeah. The, the nation wants a Jewish state. Yes. And that's become really the, the yeah. tension in Israel. You know, viewers, you, you, you need to know that as Ishai and I are talking, last night there was a huge uh, pro-government, pro-reform demonstration in Tel Aviv. And what many people, particularly in Chutz Aretz, uh, in the diaspora, don't understand is that these demonstrations, pro and con, are not really about judicial reform. They are about exactly what what Yishai has been talking about, and that is the direction of the country, whose country is this anyway, who's going to be leading the country, uh, and when you have three religious parties who are part and parcel of the coalition, it, it freaks out a lot of people, secular people, because they feel like, oh, we're becoming a theocracy, all right, which is, of course, an absurdity. We're not, no one's interested in telling other people how 
what they can do, what they can't do. But that is the fear out there. Judicial reform has been like a Pandora's box, which having opened up is exposing a lot of much deeper seated uh, rifts. And, and you, those rifts are very clearly uh, perceived in terms of the perception of Judea and Samaria, yeah. for example. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely. That, I think. I think your explanation is, is is right on, and I think that that's. And I think that anybody who thinks that we're only talking about the uh, mechanics of judicial reform, uh, and that's what the, the the fight's about, is really seeing a very topical uh, and very superficial uh, understanding. There's a much deeper rift here, uh, and and I even I even even I'm not even sure that it's that it's even specifically about. Becoming a theocracy, I think. I think that there's a. I think people have an identity. They identify Israel a certain way, and suddenly Israel is looking differently. Mm-hmm. And it's a brand. They're they're not. That's not my brand. That's right. Yeah, that's not my brand. Right. And and people people have this. You know, and and they just want to fight for their brand. Uh, I believe that that's very important uh, to fight for. To, to I have nothing against, by the way, the Tel Aviv brand. I have no problem with Israel, the high-tech country, the startup nation. I got no problem with our military prowess, and I have no problem with our, you know, with our financial prowess. I also don't have any big problem, mostly, with our liberal, uh, in the classic term, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 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 way of seeing the value of every individual human being and individual rights. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, but this is still a Jewish state. I don't want to see uh, this become a state of all its immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to see this become a the first Arab democracy or a 23rd Arab state. I don't want to see that. This is a Jewish state for the Jewish people. And there's right. nothing wrong with having uh, a national right. ethnic peoples uh, on their homeland. Right. There's nothing wrong with having, as we have historically been, a big tent. Uh, that the Jewish people are a big tent. But I think that you're right. And I think that you're right in the to to prioritize the importance of seeing all of this within the context of Israel remaining a Jewish state. Right. And, and, and what a remarkable experiment this is. What a remarkable adventure this is, that we have had the blessing after 2,000 years to come back here and to have sovereignty, to have control, to have dominion over our ancestral homeland, and to make a go of it. And uh, <laughs> You know, there are people who will say we ain't doing such a good job, and 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 there's a lot to say about that. But what I do notice is that people like Yishai, people like uh, the pro-government demonstrators, people like myself, we are very sensitive about the integrity of the social fabric in this country. We are not interested in winning if it means tearing the social fabric up. That's that's true, uh, but sometimes you have to have a caveat. You know, you have to have a caveat, which is, it's still the Middle East. Sometimes you got to let the elbows come out. You got to be. You can't. You can't always back down around here. Abs- be, absolutely right. right. Absolutely. Like like I, like I, like I don't want a civil war, but a civil push is yeah. maybe okay. Well, you know, because right now there are situations where we're being pushed around, and in the, in Israel, one of the great sins is not to be a sucker, a friar, right. you know, and you have to be careful about that. Right. Um, so our silent majority is not silent anymore, right. and that's what Yishai is basically right. saying, is it's very important to show up. You can't have one team on the field that's right. and have a game. That's right. You have to have But at the teams. same time, I tell you that I feel that uh, we are still missing... I, I, I still feel that the judicial reform fight 
is, is, is a bit of a fake. Like it doesn't want to talk about the real issues behind it. Like I, I think that one of the biggest issues uh, is, um, is um, biblical consciousness. And I don't mean religious consciousness. I'm talking about identification with the places. The reason I love Hebron is because I read the stories of the Bible of Hebron. It touched my heart. And, and I really feel that it's really missing. You know, Doug, when you lived in New York, did you ever go to Renaissance fairs? Did you ever, did you ever yes, go on this? Yes, yeah. right, right, right. So yeah. my, my parents used to take me to Renaissance yeah. fairs, and I found them to be amazing. Not that I cared so much about the Renaissance. They've had them here. They have them in the north where I Okay, live. but we, do we have a Bible fair? Yeah. Do we have a biblical fair yeah, where we no. could feel like we're putting on biblical clothing and, when, and, and, and it got to have that feeling? No, we don't, we, we're not using our brand enough. Mm-hmm. And our brand, we have to help people fall in love with the brand of a wow. biblical Israel. Beautiful. Yeah. And apropos of that, we're going to wrap it up on this. You had told me that you're very enamored of this idea of creating the biblical highway. Right. Tell us about that. Well, the biblical highway exists. Right. Uh, it's just got to be but marketed it's, it's and branded as such. Labeled. As right, labeled as such. And that is a road that we have, the heartland road of the Jewish people. It's one road that connects, uh, it goes over the ridge of Judea and Samaria, but also connects Beersheba in the south, uh, the Jezreel Valley in the north. It's one road, it's called Route 60. Uh, you remember in America they used to have a show called Route 66, yes, yeah. right? And there's this famous heritage highway. Right. Uh, we have one road like that. It is an amazing road. It goes from Beersheba to Hebron, from, Hebra, from Hebron to Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, right. from there to Jerusalem, from there to Beit El, from there to Shiloh, from there to Shechem, from there to the Jezreel Valley uh, and the Tavor. And so uh, this one road we have is such an amazing thing. So I'm bringing an American idea, which is like the road. Right. It's not just the places on the road, but the road itself. Right. And so we are working right now to rename it officially, uh, Route 60, the Biblical Highway, or in Hebrew, Derech HaTanach. And uh, parts of the government are very excited about that. The mayors along the way are excited about that. Uh, David Friedman uh, got excited about that and, and made a movie that's coming out in September, which is with Mike Pompeo along the Biblical Highway. That's what it's called, Route 60, the Biblical Highway. Uh, he bought it, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's, yeah. a, he's, a, he's a brand ambassador yeah, yeah. Uh, of the it's Biblical Highway. It's a great highway. idea. And, it's, and it's, a, it's not hard to conceptualize. Well, you know, Avraham went from Hebron, right. Beersheba to Hebron and back and forth. And, right. and all of those places along the way that are found in the Bible, it's, it's just great. Uh, before we go, how can people, regular people, good people, get involved? I want a tour of Hebron, I want to see Hebron, who can I meet? How can, uh, what, what should they know about? Uh, I'm very proud that the Hebron Fund has a fabulous tour schedule, which we really offer once or twice a week, English language tours from Jerusalem. We pick you up, we, we bring you there safely uh, and comfortably, and you really get to see Hebron, you get to see the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs. We also go to Tomb of Rachel along the way. We tell you the story, the, the great uh, Rabbi Simcha Hachbaum, Leads yeah. the tours usually, and so so all you do is you go to hebronfund.org, you go to the tour, and and that makes all the difference for us. You know, before you, anybody even supports us, we want them to come and see it yes. and feel it, and that's the best way. Uh, so that's hebronfund.org. Hebronfund.org. Don't forget that. That's right. And having having been an alumnus of that tour, it is a must uh, experience. 
And, and if people want to stay in touch with me, I put out a podcast every week, uh, which includes Israeli politics, Israeli culture, a little uh, a time talking with my wife, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> people like the energy there. It's like Regis and Kathy Lee type right. of thing. Uh, and that's at YishaiFleischer.com. Uh, and we do a lot of work throughout. We do a lot of work of beautification, uh, of narrative war, um, of Hebron, and, uh, and strengthening people in this time where they need strengthening. Wonderful. Yishai Fleischer, we should put you in the water supply here. Okay? <laughs> Thank you so much. God bless you. Keep up the good work. And, 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 and as you guys say around here, if you will, it is no dream. Thank you. All right, Malka. Uh, that was me and Doug uh, in the studios at Imtirtsu, great organization. Uh, Malka, we're overlooking the beautiful Mediterranean. In the distance, I see the two uh, gas rigs uh, of the uh, Tamar. Uh, and Leviathan gas rigs uh, and uh, they're out there um, and I see them bringing more financial success and energy to, to Israel and, fi- and energy to the world uh, that reminds me of just one plastic from this week's Parsha Re'eh in the book of Dvarim in the book of Deuteronomy which is the Shikhno Tidrashu Vatashama you should yearn for his dwelling place and go there when it comes to God we gotta search him out we gotta seek him out and he tells us, find my, find my spiritual center and go there. And that's, the, uh, that's Yerushalayim. And that's what the building of the state of Israel is really about. The Shikhnot Jeshu, it means create, yearn for his dwelling place in this world and go there. That's the simple, go there. Go there means visit there. It means send your kids there. It means buy a house there. It means send your money there. It means put a picture of, up, up in, your, in your house there. It means go there. Like, like we say in English, like, I don't want to go there. Like, go there. I want to go there. Israel, be part of it. The verses, You should yearn, search for his dwelling place, and go there. And I think that's, to me, that's a very, just, that's a central theme in a life. When I see verses like that, I imagine them like on a wall. I imagine them just printed out and just stuck in front of my wall. That's like, that's the, that's the, what do you call it? The uh, catch, not catchphrase. What is it called? Your, your, not your byline, not your catchphrase. Your, your mission statement. Yearn for his dwelling place and go there. Be part of it. You are part of it when you're listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, which broadcasts from the beautiful land of Israel. Thank you, Hashem, for giving us the unbelievable uh, merit and honor to try to serve you and to seek you out. Thank you to all of the folks that are part of it, that are the listeners, that are the friends, that are the supporters in things like buymeacoffee.com forward slash Yishai or YishaiFleischer.com. Thank you for your support. Thank you to my crewmates, Tabitha, Ben Bresky, Yocheved, Moshe Herman, and Lou, when we're live, uh, that help produce the show and get it out to the world. Thank you, Hashem, again. Thank you, Mediterranean, for being so beautiful. Thank you, Malka Fleischer, for the same. And God bless you, folks, uh, wherever you are. Stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected, and shalom. Shalom.